Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In this week's Trending News EU episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Jack Young and Ali May to talk about what's trending now. Jack, what headlines have you been following lately? So I wanted to share with our listeners today some details related to the UK's life sciences plan. This plan was launched in July of 2021, and essentially it sets out the 10-year strategy for the healthcare sector within the UK. It's mission-led, and it's aimed to solve some of the biggest problems of our generation, including cancer and dementia. So it outlines seven critical healthcare missions that both the government, industry, the NHS, academia, and medical research charities will work together on over the 10-year time horizon. And at a high level, these include accelerating the pace of studies into novel dementia treatment, enabling earlier diagnosis and treatments, including cancer vaccines, sustaining the UK's position in vaccine discovery, treatment and prevention of cardiovascular diseases, reducing mortality and morbidity from respiratory diseases, Addressing the underlying biology of ageing is obviously a key challenge across not just the UK, but the, the world at large, and increasing the understanding of mental health conditions. We're going to share uh, another story later on, which is going to give some really innovative examples of some of those areas of treatment to tackle mental health conditions. And Jack, when this was published, I think we were all extremely excited in the industry. You know, we have this new government 10 year plan. But it's been two years now. I think it's fair to say it's only only recently been gathering some what I would say is much needed momentum. So earlier this month, the Life Sciences Council met to discuss how can the UK actually realise some of those some of those points that you just listed. I think they're all areas and trends that if the UK wants to remain a leader in life sciences, we do need to be focusing on. And top of the agenda really was there's been a recent decline in clinical trial performance in the UK and also a decline in life sciences investment. So if the government wants to realise this plan, they really need to tackle this. And just to show how much of a priority it was, that meeting was chaired by the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt. Chloe Smith, the Secretary of State for the Department of Science, Innovation and Technology was there. And then also Pascal Sorio, the Chief Executive of AstraZeneca was present as well. Yeah, Ollie, it's been a little while since first published, but nice to see it's gaining some momentum, particularly with that recent meeting within Downing Street. And just to build on a few points you mentioned in terms of some of the areas in which are focused right now for, for the plan. And one of those is Dame Angela McLean's review of the life sciences regulatory system, as well as Lord O'Shaughnessy's independent review of clinical trials. So you touched on the, the challenge around clinical trials. And you're right, there are some quite significant challenges related to clinical trials within the UK in terms of mainly around the pace uh, in which they could be completed. And one of the things that came out of this meeting or, or developments in recent uh, times around this area is around £120 million worth of funding to help this particular area to speed up trials. And it mainly revolves around reducing the regulatory burden, as that tends to have quite a significant impact on the pace of clinical trials in terms of their execution within the, the UK. In addition to this, the government announced a host of other measures. These included encouraging industry investment, uh, that included investment within the UK Biobank, a new manufacturing fund, as well as an apprenticeship manual, as well as some new healthcare innovation networks. 
And although this is still in its infancy and still quite early days within the plan, it's really encouraging to see that the government is placing, you know, quite a lot of focus within the healthcare or life sciences sector with this particular vision and plan and execution. And it's right they're doing that because there's a huge economic potential of the life sciences industry. It's it's already worth around 94.2 billion globally in 2021. The industry really is a, a crown jewel in, in the UK's economy and in the business that we do here. And I think the government needs to or is trying to take a step here to say, how can we be an enabler and how can we give industry the keys to success and provide them with the environment where these businesses can flourish and where, as you mentioned, Jack, clinical trials can take place at a reasonable pace and where we can get quick answers. And ultimately, what this will lead to is getting innovative medicines to patients and capturing that growth opportunity. This is obviously a very competitive environment. Countries all over Europe and around the world are trying to attract this sort of high quality, highly skilled workforce and have these clinical trials and research happening in their countries. And I know that a couple of months ago, we were talking about the the medicine pricing scheme and VPAS. And that's just one example of how the commercial environment in the UK at the moment is in flux. And what leaders in the industry really need is they need certainty, they need a fixed environment and a stable environment in which they can operate in. Thanks, Ali and Jack. Definitely seeing a lot of parallels here in the States when I think about those those priorities that you had listed off at the top, right, from the the inception of this program in 2021. I think about President Biden's reinvigoration of the cancer moonshot. I think about the ARPA-H focus to accelerate development in healthcare, almost similar to how they had done with defense here in the States. And I think that really reflects the, the globalization of healthcare and the life sciences industry specifically here, right? I wouldn't expect to see major differences. And I think some of those headwinds that you talked about as well, particularly when it comes to pricing, are the same kinds of headwinds we're facing here in the life sciences industry, particularly as the legislative branch is increasing the scrutiny on on drug pricing, calling for more transparency, you know, going after some players like pharmacy benefit managers, of course, but, you know, typically we know that the the pricing hat is kind of hung on that life sciences hook most often. I'm curious in the context of this global life sciences industry that we operate in today, what are we seeing outside of the UK? What are we seeing across Europe when it comes to some successes and challenges in the industry? when we consider how European countries are, are performing, two really do stick out, Jen, and there's been some some news and focus on them recently, and that's Denmark and Sweden. Really, they've both shown amazing growth over the past decade, especially in comparison with the rest of Europe. Now, I'm sure Denmark won't be a surprise to hear. Obviously, Novo Nordisk has seen huge success recently. They've just released a, a groundbreaking obesity drug, and that is actually now the second biggest pharma business in Europe. So Nova Nordisk now have 55,000 employees worldwide, 40% of which are in Denmark. Just to put some numbers to how well these two countries have performed in life sciences, in the last decade, Denmark's pharma exports have doubled. Pharma exports now make up more than 20% of their total exports. And in the same period, Sweden's pharma exports have grown by two thirds. 
Yeah, remarkable success stories, both in Denmark and Sweden, Ollie, as you mentioned. And I'm pretty jealous of people that actually live in those countries. Some of my mates are actually moving out there due to the amazing healthcare and the amazing quality of life that they have there. And it's obviously not done by accident. It's very intentional how they've been able to craft that. And the growth has been helped by a huge number of different factors, including government funding for research. Uh, they're really high quality universities and hospitals they have, as well as the significant support they get from larger companies. In terms of the government support, both Denmark and Sweden have dedicated life science strategies and invest around 3% of their GDP in research innovation. And that actually puts them amongst the top in the world for R&D investment on a per capita basis. There are also a high number of early stage biotechs in Sweden, and they actually rank fifth the number of medicines being researched in Europe. And that's really quite impressive when you consider that's against some much larger, more established markets like the Netherlands and Italy. And Jack, you mentioned the support from larger companies as a driving factor. Nova Nordisk actually has a very, in the UK and the US, we would consider an unusual business model. So Nova Nordisk is controlled by the Nova Nordisk Foundation, which is actually a not-for-profit with philanthropic goals. And other Danish brands, very well known like Lego and Carlsberg, also have the same foundation structure. Even in the past, when significant foreign money and foreign investment has been on the table, Novo Nordisk has never never really been sold off to foreign buyers. And the chief executive of the holding company, Kazim Kute, he's a huge advocate of the model. He says that this foundation model is one of the reasons why Denmark, although it's only a country with five and a half million people, punches way above its weight when it comes to to industry and business. And and Denmark now has many household brands for all over the world. And just to provide a a couple of examples of part of the foundation's mission is to ensure that the Nordics remain a a vibrant scientific research hub and that the company's success spills over into the wider life sciences environment. Now, clearly, that has a benefit to wider society in terms of high quality jobs and, and access to some of these latest medicines. And it's also in Novo Nordisk's interest to have a thriving life sciences sector in Denmark and and in Sweden. So just to provide a couple of examples, the company has reinvested profits from the foundation into a 300 million pound stem cell medicine research centre and a 200 million pound quantum computing biology research centre. And we'll include links to both of those in the episode notes. So the company still generates these market type returns whilst managing to make these donations to the wider life sciences sector and community. Yeah, Oli, I love the foundation type model. It's a model that Servier also adopts, another large life sciences company. But I'm just going to talk a little bit about AstraZeneca, because it's quite interesting you think about AstraZeneca in the context of the Nordic success. Some people may remember that it was back in 2013 that AstraZeneca announced it was moving its research headquarters to Cambridge in the UK although it does still consider itself Anglo-Swedish. But when this happened, the Swedish government was very intentional about making sure that that pharma ecosystem did not disappear. And as you can see from what we've talked about today, it has thrived. The former R&D HQ near Stockholm was reused to house startups. The government provided a combination of financial support and also subsidised rent. Recruitment's a huge challenge. It's very competitive across the life sciences sector and the outgoing chair of AstraZeneca referenced the famous high quality of life in the Nordics and 
saying you cannot earn as much money as an American CFO in Boston, but you'll never be able to attract the kind of people if you want to have children and young family, as Sweden is such a lovely place to be. And I think you can't overemphasize that enough around Sweden and the Nordics and Scandinavia in general. That quality of life is such a huge draw for them. And it also permeates into the healthcare system in terms of the work-life balance of the doctors in terms of having a positive way of life and more time to be able to spend with patients. They also have quite a flat hierarchical structure within the hospital networks as well, which also adds to the exceptional healthcare that they are able to provide to their patients. Yes, I mean, in the UK, we often discuss the high quality of life in Denmark and Sweden and also in other Nordic countries. And you can see why if you're a world-class researcher with a young family and you could go and work anywhere in the world, maybe you would pick Denmark or Sweden. Maybe you would pick that quality of life and childcare and education, etc. I think it'll be fascinating to see if these Nordic countries can maintain this momentum. I mean, obviously, the last decade has been hugely successful for them, especially in the context of AstraZeneca moving their headquarters to Cambridge. That's amazing that Sweden's managed to keep up that momentum. And Medicon Valley is is this innovation hub that's on the Denmark-Sweden border, which their governments are really focusing on. There's over a thousand companies there now, a huge proportion of which are startups. And the question over the next decade is going to be, can they make the jump from being these biotech startups or, or working on novel drugs to actually can they commercially and successfully launch a drug to market and make that step? I mean, currently, Medicon Valley is the fourth largest pharma commercial center in Europe for quality and number of papers cited. So it is currently being beaten by London, Zurich and, and Flanders. So it'd be interesting to see if Denmark and Sweden can continue to go from strength to strength. And can some of these startups become the next AstraZeneca or next Novo Nordisk? I'm sold. I feel like I should be campaigning for a dynamic Nordic outpost. But all kidding aside, it's really great to see the success of these Nordic nations when it comes to their ability to really foster this ecosystem, this incubator for life sciences within their nations, even as some of the, the larger companies are changing positions. We talked a little bit earlier about how the U.S and the UK have very similar goals to what they're trying to achieve in the life sciences sector in terms of specific advancements in oncology, in vaccines, in dementia, in cardiovascular disease, and looking at some of the innovative structures that these Nordic nations have. Maybe not all will be possible within our own government systems and healthcare markets, but definitely some, some great lessons learned there in terms of where can we maybe tweak our current model or change our ways of thinking to to accelerate some of that progress, particularly in early stage research? And I'd love to see maybe some learning as well when it comes to quality of life, happiness and mental health, because I think for both of our nations, mental health has become an increasing priority in the healthcare landscape. So on the mental health side of things, I'd love to just share with you and our listeners some really exciting reality projects for mental health. Mental health problems of some kind will be experienced by one in four people each year in the UK, while only one in eight adults with a mental health problem are currently getting any kind of treatment. So obviously, it's a significant problem that exists, not just within the UK, but obviously across the world. And Innovate UK, which is, if you haven't heard of it, it's the UK's innovation agency, essentially provides money and support to organisations to make new products and services. 
It's a non-departmental public body and it operates at arm's length from the government and it's part of the United Kingdom's research and innovation organization. And it's essentially funded three projects as part of its mindset program, which aims to support the development of extended and virtual reality tools for people struggling with their mental health. Mindset was set up last year with £20 million worth of funding, and it has this lofty ambition to nurture the UK's quite nascent and immersive digital healthcare sector and help startups bring VR and XR digital therapies to market. To date, 29 organisations have been selected for this £20 million funding, and £3 million has already been provided to those organisations, and the rest of the money, the £17 million, will be provided over the next few years. Jack, unfortunately, this is an area that is grossly underserved in the UK at the moment, and that's in the context of the, I guess, NHS and public finance pressures we, we're having. So what is great to see is that there is investment in innovative solutions, and we have this pressure of being underserved and not having the money to to, to increase service, say, eightfold, for example, to to help everyone under the current regime. And some of the exciting projects that are receiving funding. So you mentioned that there's the VR Melody project. This is going to explore how music content and AI can be used to create a personalized VR therapy for people experiencing anxiety, and it also helps to build mental resilience. There's also XR Therapeutics. This has been awarded funding for a project that will use VR headsets to help children with autism or phobias. And this company's approach is to generate immersive digital scenes and audio, which can then be controlled and adapted by a therapist in real time and treat specific phobias or anxiety triggers. This technology is actually already being deployed by three innovative NHS trusts. And finally, another winner that's received funding, the London-based Sync VR Medical. They're going to use a grant to create what it, what they're claiming is to be the world's first mood management application to be used on VR headsets, which supports high-risk patients whilst they are waiting for that mental health care and whilst they are in the system and, and, and waiting to see a specialist. And these are just three of those of those 29 that you mentioned. And it's great to see that there are companies mission driven out there to try and meet that unmet need that we currently have in the UK. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Ollie. And they're just super interesting and exciting examples of like new ways to tackle this condition. So I'm really, really happy to to see you share those examples and all the other 29 organizations are getting funding because it's obviously a huge unmet need. And There's a lot of data to suggest that these types of therapies are going to be hugely beneficial as well. I mean, research has shown that delivering therapies via VR can achieve outcomes that are two to three times faster than traditional treatments and cut wait times, improve access to services and importantly, reduce the severity of symptoms. And figures from the market research company iMark suggest that the global market for XR and VR technologies in healthcare was worth $4.5 billion last year, but that this will grow incredibly sharply to $20.1 billion in 2028, driven by the use of this gamified physical therapy, as it's called, and immersive therapies for mental health patients, the training of healthcare professionals and also in telemedicine delivery. So, so really exciting, nice little innovative story. UK, obviously, hopefully leading the way in this space as well, that other markets and countries may follow to help mitigate and improve the outcomes for those that are suffering with mental health. And Jack, I think you, you touched on it there, but the really key point here is that this is scalable. 
if you think about the traditional medicine, it's you get a therapist and you go and see them and that therapist only has a certain number of slots in the day. And that is the challenge that we're facing as the number of people with mental health conditions has risen dramatically over the past few years for external factors. And we've just got better at diagnosing. So these innovative, scalable solutions that can be rolled out across thousands of people very quickly without hiring additional resources and additional therapists, which can take years to train, is really important. I think as we look look forward to the next few years, this could become a really key part of the NHS's strategy for treating mental health diseases. I'm so impressed by the examples that you shared when it comes to VR and mental health. I think back to my psychology 101 days and the traditional exposure therapy we had learned about for anxiety disorders and just seeing the huge potential in this marketplace to be able to scale that, to be able to create complex scenarios that maybe do not transfer as well to the therapist's office. And then just thinking about the, the huge stigma that still remains within mental health and how many more people might be willing to seek treatment if they they know that they can do it within the comfort or privacy of their home versus you know having to kind of put themselves out there to go seek out a mental health professional in, in an office setting. So I'm really excited to see this progress, to see the investment from the UK government and to look at where this type of therapy can really go in the future. Thanks, Jack and Ali, for taking us through these headlines. As always, we know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change, so I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.